and welcome to the Modern Maker Podcast. Today is Thursday, October 18th, otherwise known as No Beard Day. Bad day for woodworkers. Yeah, what do you think the percentage of clean-shaven woodworkers, especially in content, <sighs> I'd say it's pretty low, right? It is pretty low, yeah. I'm going to go... Especially if you compare it to the general population, 100%. You think it's 100%? I say 7.9%. Unbearded? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I think your your guess is a little high there, Mike, even though I know that's not what you meant when you said 100%. <laughs> Thanks yeah. for clarifying. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny how that kind of goes with the genre, although that's probably true across quite... I mean, I think in general, just facial hair is having a moment. Overall, the lumberjack aesthetic has gone down. It stays strong in the woodworking community, but I also see it fading away a little bit. I think people will naturally be stubbly because it's the path of least resistance. And so as long as it's culturally acceptable, we'll be lazy. Yeah, the way the way I see the trend is it sort of peaked with the sort of lumber sexual kind of thing (laughs) where people are really into kind of the hipster lumberjack look. Mm -hmm. But I think it's something that'll kind of stick around as it's like the same way like the tech industry made dressing really casual at work kind of a cool thing. Yeah. And it sort of reached its peak of the sort of hoodie days, but that's declined. But a lot of that legacy has sort of stayed as a permanent trend. Mm-hmm. So Worked I think it's way into me. Right. So I think it might be true because it's also casual clothes are more comfortable and shaving every day kind of sucks. So yeah. I think I think it'll be as like a more common thing, but maybe we already reached peaked or we peaked uh, in terms of beardness. There you go. That's a hot take. <laughs> Peak <right>. beardness. Peak beard. <laughs> That's a great stat. All right. So Mike, something that you've noticed is that people often ask us to reintroduce ourselves, right? For maybe some oh, yeah. of the... I don't know, maybe somebody stumbled upon the podcast, but they're not as familiar with us, what we do on our channels. Or maybe they found us through one of the three of us and they don't know the other two. So I feel like it would be a good opportunity right now, and maybe we'll do it every 50 episodes. We'll do it occasionally. Mm. Nothing crazy, but we'll just kind of talk about what we do, what we build, why we enjoy building, maybe a quick dip into our past life, like what influenced us and where the inspiration for even starting building things came from. And we'll take it from there. Better idea. How about we introduce each other? Oh, that's because talking about yourself is difficult because it is difficult. It's hard to be objective without sell, sounding or sounding self-aggrandizing or right. falsely humble. And both okay. of those things suck. Okay, yeah. I'm let's not... see. Let's see how well we know each other's origin story. Then, all right. Here, I'm Whoa. gonna go. I'm gonna do Mike. Ready? All right. Okay. Are Mike? we going clockwise or counterclockwise? I don't know. I'll do Mike. Mike, I don't, whatever. I'm just starting with you. <laughs> I don't know if there is a clockwise here, but anyway. There's not. We're on a Skype call. <laughs> this is going to be tough. All right. Let's see. So Mike's background. Well, mm-hmm. first off, let me say what he builds before I get yeah. into his background is that I would say that Mike builds things that have a modern twist, but he tries to break them down into very simple steps that a common person can tackle with a not super huge stable of tools. Is that fair? You nailed that. I mean, that's as good as I would have said it. There you go. And his origin story, he was... How did did I even get into this? It's because you were going to school for music production. Yeah. Ooh. You had had a background in like building some stuff. Your grandpa builds stuff. And you had made friends with people that wanted you to make them like pedal boards and that kind of stuff. So you started doing that. 
started getting more into it. You realized that you didn't want to stick with the music production thing because working with the uh, music creative types was not all it was cracked up to be in your opinion. So you decided to take a stab at YouTube and it blew up. And here you are. And here I am. All the way up. Hmm. (laughs) Well, let let me take a stab at describing. Well, we'll just do Mike first. So let me take a stab at describing Mike. Wow, y'all are. Because I would do it totally differently. Ganging up on him. All right. I was thinking of it more in terms of how Mike is different from the other two, right? So a lot of people, maybe they're just hearing the audio version of this and they're being like, okay, it's the kind of guy that says so and like too much and a lot of ums. Then there's the young, enthusiastic guy. And then there's the guy that like puns. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty so much it. Mike's the youngest and probably the most like just generally cheerful and good natured. I am he, a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, super friendly, probably also the most socially outgoing. I'd say so. So if you're at WorkbenchCon, the most likely if you're in line for some sort of food or snack bar or something like that. They'll just strike up conversation, ask you where you're from and doing that. I think Chris and I are probably a little bit more reserved uh, uh, just just in general socially, not that we're, you know, reclusive. I think Mike is also has the best uh, like on camera skills. And I still think you should bring more of that to Instagram, especially in sort of permanent video posts. I also think it's really fun because we all share this this similar interest and semi-career path but mike is also probably me and chris are close in age and then mike is like Mm -hmm. a generation and a half uh (laughs) apart so i think there's actually like a ton of really good learnings there like i I always feel like i'm learning you know or just getting insight into uh a younger generation's thought process and the way they're thinking about different things particularly social media and so i think that's where sort of you know uh at least where I find like Mike's insights like super useful. Wow, I liked it. I would agree with 100% of that, except for the, well, 99%. I'd say maybe he's a decade and a half. I don't know about a generation and a half. Also, Mike is from the Midwest. Me and Chris are from California. So that's a, a big cultural difference. Oh, and the last thing I'll say about Mike is he's, <laughs> he knows what he likes, but he's pretty good natured and open to trying new things, particularly food. So try when, that you, seafood. when you first came out to California, hadn't tried sushi yet and all those things. And Jen, you're like, you're like, I don't know if I like that, but I'll try it. And then you're like, hey, that's not bad. I don't hate that. And now yeah. he knows that he loves sriracha. And fun yeah. fact, I got so hooked on chopsticks from being out there with you guys <laughs> that when I got back to Oklahoma, the first thing I did was go to Payway, which is an Asian place, and I stole about 20 pairs of chopsticks. So much for good natured. <laughs> well, chop- I bought food. Okay. I bought food. <laughs> all right. I'll let it slide then. Actually, the, the one thing that I'll add about Mike that's always impressed me about him is that it all, I always have to remind myself about how young he is because like he does have that young energy and everything, but... When I think about like what I was doing at 22 or 20, what were you when you started this? 20, 19? 19. Yeah, that's like, it's insane. Like how much you have accomplished in from 19 to 22 or 23 or whatever you are now. Well, I genuinely appreciate that a lot from both of you guys. It was very kind words. And now I'm going to describe myself. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Allow myself to introduce myself. You guys did a great job. So who's next? Who are we gonna Chris? Who are we gonna tag team here? Go for it. <laughs> That's the worst thing that I could have said. <laughs> yeah, it is. So Chris is up. Okay, I would love to go first. All right. Chris is 
methodical. If I had to use one word to describe him, he is methodical or calculated in the best sense of the word. He is a graphic designer by trade, roughly. We'll say that, right? Yes, I have a background in graphic design. I'll allow it. And has a history in commission furniture building. So he was a part-time pro for a good portion of the few years ago before starting YouTube. Mm -hmm. So he brings a really interesting spin into what we do because, one, he's designed furniture professionally. And he's also built it to the quality to sell at a reasonable price to make it worth your time. So unlike Ben and I, who do a lot of DIY projects with simple tools and simple methods of construction, Chris obviously doesn't go crazy. He's not one of those types to build things that are just out of the box and unattainable. But what he does do is build things the right way at a really just high quality. And so for the audience member that is not familiar with his content, I think the best thing you'll get out of that, out of his content is one great design, straight lines, clean, simple, modern touches, but also the knowledge that if I were to build something Chris builds the way he builds it, I will have done it right. I love it. Not to mention he loves puns and he's got a great sense of humor. So if you love podcast intros, you're going to be a huge fan of Chris. And I like long walks on the beach. (laughs) (laughs) Chris knows what he likes. Like he is very comfortable For a creative person, he knows exactly where he wants to experiment and where he's going to draw the line, right? (laughs) Like, he's a guy that knows what works for him, like Pop-Tarts, for example. (laughs) They work. Right? So, I I, I imagine you living a life of sort of compartmentalized experimentation. You have your your sort of regimented parts, which are your daily habits and routines. I almost could imagine like a movie montage of like... (laughs) This like montage of you like waking up, going through the routine, and then doing that. Then I think like this is. Just, I'm not saying this is how you are. This is just how I imagine you. So I refuse to be proven wrong with this. I'm just going to insist on thinking this way, no matter what. Right. So I imagine there's like these parts of your life that are very r- routine, and then with woodworking and making is where you really deviate and are super expressive and experiment with all sorts of things. And this is just from I, I'm. I'm drawing this profile just from seeing you eat and uh, having had a lot of conversations with you on a podcast. So uh, the work is, Chris is more meticulous and less sloppy than me and Mike. Me and Mike work really fast and are very comfortable with good enough. Uh, Chris always takes things uh, a step farther in a little bit more refined way, but is still able, which I think is actually the, the rarest part, is that a lot of people that focus on refinement, it ex- it's at the exclusion of creativity and invention. Whereas I think, you know, it's funny that the, the anecdote that always sort of sticks with me is when you were experimenting with the vinyl wrap over the wood. Mm-hmm. And me and Mike are pretty good about, hey, we'll try anything. Like, <laughs> you know, oh, this weird stain or this technique or a strange material or a different tool. We'll be like, oh, we'll get on Amazon. We'll see how it works. Ah, that didn't work great. Toss it. Um so seeing you sort of, you know, be the first person that we knew of to, to experiment with that in the woodworking context, uh, I think is shows that your brain's always like you have your craftsmanship down, you have your sort of great storytelling down. And it's awesome that on top of that, you're still looking for a little extra things to add into the mix to really drive and take a project to the next level. So I would say you have this great combination of 
of routine and methodicalness, which leads, I think, to the really consistent high quality, but you know when to sort of break form and add in something and experiment to try and uh, bring novelty and new ideas to the table. Literally, sometimes the table. And I'll throw in one more thing is you've got a great sense of humor, which I think I highlighted, but I think what I want to say more is that you've got a great way of bringing your sense of humor into your videos. I think you've got the most unique edits of anyone in our space. You've got the most stylized and clean, consistent videos, and you make the funniest little jokes throughout the whole thing. And it's never over the top, and it's never cheap. Well, sometimes uh, it's cheesy, but yeah. cheesy in the right. <laughs> it's cheesy in the right way. It's like uh, self-aware, yeah, and I, I really cheesy. like that. Yeah, Thank it's you. only as cheesy at the same percentage that there are completely clean-shaven woodworkers. Right, seven point nine percent. Seven point nine percent cheese. All right, Ben's turn. Awesome. Yeah, how do you feel with that, Chris? Is there anything that like, we missed on a major I, scale? I think you guys were pretty good. Oh, ben. Chris is also the only dad here, so he's got that perspective of us. He's That's got right. two kids. I do. So Not including you guys. And he's taller than <laughs> you would think. There we go. Awesome. So All now right. it's time Ben's to turn. give us the bio on Ben. So Chris, do you yes. want to start? Sure. Okay, so I don't know if this is really a bio, but I'll say the number one my favorite thing about Ben. Ben is one of the best people to have in your corner if you have to do something publicly. Because if everything else stalls out. You could say, Ben, you got to do 45 minutes on paper clips. He could do it. He could cover for you. Like, you don't have to worry about just like dead air or anything like that. Like, he's going to be able to, to get it done. He's also, I would say, like one of the smartest and most impressive people in our space. Like, actually, when we were first putting the podcast together, I remember thinking like, oh, there's no way Ben's going to want to do it. Like, he's way too accomplished and, and big to do this podcast with us or whatever. And so I was always amazed at how quick he said yes and was willing to do it. Like that always impressed me. And actually, I think that's the, one of the the big takeaways that I've had from Ben. And cause, okay, like you guys are both the type to just like say yes to something very quick. And Mm -hmm. I think that's something that has rubbed off on me a little bit. Like I think I've become a little bit more risk taking uh, or less risk adverse, whatever, uh, because of just hanging out with you guys and like, because the three of us are going to do something together. So I'm going to go along with it or whatever. Whereas in the past, I might not have. And Mike, like you have that personality where anybody would look at you and know that you were like that. Cause you're just kind of like, you know, devil may care, whatever. You're just, whatever. You're just going for it. But Ben is simultaneously super calculating and methodical, but also like quick to just say yes to anything and I'll figure it out. That's the thing that I think is really unique about him. And that has always stood out to me. Boom. My turn. Your turn. All right. So once again, if I were to boil you down to a quick phrase, I would I would say like professional amateur when it comes to YouTube. <laughs> you embrace not taking the time to perfect something, which I think is a great takeaway, especially for me, someone that's still learning everything that he likes in the world and exactly what I want to design and what I want to build. Like as somebody that's still kind of looking for a style and looking for what I really try and do long term, uh, it's really cool seeing you doing something like architecture. Okay, so let's throw it back. Let's before YouTube, Ben was an architect designing green and eff- energy efficient homes, and d- decided to quit that to make content, building sy- like furniture that is replicable and 
uses accessible materials. Uh, and, and with that, I mean, you walked away from being a full-time architect to make no money on the internet with the potential of making a good living. Seeing somebody do that, especially somebody from where I'm from that like once you get into a job, that's what you do forever. That was really different for me to experience. And since then, uh, as we've gotten to know each other, I definitely consider you a mentor in that way. And yeah, that's what I would say is you've just embraced constantly learning something new, which is really awesome. Uh, So yeah, other things I've learned from Ben, I guess this isn't describing him, but it's what I've learned from him is... He can turn anything into a steak analogy. (laughs) You can turn anything into a food analogy, one. But also, welcome having way too many ideas, but also be like real enough with yourself to vet out the crappy ones. We have, whenever we were both in Joshua Tree, we would have a lot of brainstorming sessions that took many tangents and many left turns. And oftentimes I would just kind of get too excited about one thing or like get really married to an idea. And then the next day be like, well, that kind of sucks. Or Ben would point out a really good error in my logic. And oftentimes I try and force ideas where I kind of focus on things and I kind of get tunnel vision on stuff. But Ben has done a good job of helping me realize that Never be scared that you're going to run out of ideas because if you've got them now, you're going to have them later. And if this one's not the one, then it's not the one. Yeah, I think that the, one of the hardest things to do is because we're collaborating, particularly with things like Maker Brand, with this podcast. And anytime you're in a creative setting where our business endeavors will do better, the more good ideas that we find. But there's time and capital constraints, so we can't pursue all ideas, and all ideas aren't equally good. Right. So it becomes this really tricky thing that I think in any business that involves creativity uh, uh, reaches, it's the challenge of how do you sort through ideas without negging people, right? Without, without waiting to speak and kind of just putting them down so that people don't feel that. But you also don't want to be like falsely cheerleading ideas that you don't believe in. And I think what uh, what we've learned is we want to be excited about all the ideas, even the bad ones, even the silly ones. But we just need to let the enthusiasm of that idea carry it out in the conversation, and, and even if it goes to a totally silly point. But then afterwards, rank that idea relative to the other things. So it's like we we've had those conversations, mostly sober, uh, where we've generated just just throwing things out there, just having fun, sitting on the back porch, brainstorming up a whole ton of things. And we're both pretty supportive of the other ideas, but when it comes to taking action, that's where we can be more ruthless. So yeah. I think we've gotten good at not shooting an idea down in the moment, but asking questions that will then sort of say, how will we know if that idea will work? I think it's like a great way to say it. Or how would you measure that idea versus this idea? And that way we don't have to shoot down the creative impulse. We can be supportive of that. But we're actually looking for the secondary question of awesome idea. How do we rank that? And how do we quantify its probability for success? Or how do we quantify the upside if it wins big or the downside if it goes south? And I think because you also don't want to kill an idea too early because if you foster this idea... Like what I'm saying is as we brainstorm and have ideas and it takes a left turn, you never know when this mediocre idea leads to a great idea. Right. So it's also the idea of like, when do you cut an idea off to? 
So I, I think that's one of the, the trickiest things in any creative relationship. And I've str- I've seen that both succeed and fail in previous group design projects or architecture projects where people start to resent each other over time. If they one, they feel like their ideas aren't listened to and aren't acknowledged and are never picked. Um, and also they get really annoyed if they feel like people are just sort of nodding and enthusiastically, oh, that's great, and then not doing them. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I think for both Maker Brand and the health of this podcast, like, you know, establishing that between the three of us has been one of the most important things. And then the last thing I would describe Ben as is not a woodworker. <laughs> yes. I think you embody the phrase maker very well. I don't, I don't know exactly, but if I remember right, your first video is involving like copper and wine bottles, correct? Yep. Exactly. He's a wine worker. And this man is the, the king of concrete in its heyday and constantly <laughs> experimenting and trying new things. So if there's a takeaway from Ben, it is you never know what he's going to make next and you're never going to know what it's going to be made out of. <laughs> yes. That's pretty good, right? Yeah. That's good stuff. <laughs> awesome. Touchy-feely episode. All right. Know, so, we really got there. So the now opposite it, of a roast. So now that everybody <laughs> knows us, what have you guys been working on? Well, this week, I took a quick break from the bathroom remodel, which is going swimmingly, to help my buddy Caleb, who in the past helped me film some videos and some other things along the way. Uh, He, along with another friend of mine, is opening a, I guess what you would call a high-end streetwear clothing store in downtown Oklahoma City called 1032 Space. If you're in the area, check it out. We're going to be opening it on October 26th. But but yeah, we're going to be building out all of the clothing racks, all of the displays, the counters, the tables, and everything in it so that we can open on time. It's pretty cool. It is definitely another learning experience, just like I was saying with the bathroom, but it's a lot of fun. So essentially, the space that they leased is a big open square with polished, dark stained concrete floors. They're Mm -hmm. kind of charcoal colored, glossy white walls, and a lot of empty space. And so our idea is we're going to theme it with the idea of raw steel and OSB. Those are the main materials for a couple reasons. One, the raw steel is going to pair really nicely with the floor. It's going to help everything kind of just hover the tables with the metal bases and just kind of focus people's attention to the tabletop where Mm -hmm. the merchandise is. And then the other reason is because OSB is cheap (laughs) and we're trying to do this efficiently as possible. Which I appreciate. I mean, it's cool. I invested in the company, so this is my first whatever you would call kind of capital investment in my life. Mm -hmm. I've never given people money so that they can make money. I'm excited to see how that pans out. But other than that, we're just building a bunch of kind of pedestals, like I mentioned, out of OSB, some tables and benches from OSB with metal bases. And overall, it's going to be just a clean, simple look. Whenever they described the idea that they wanted for the build-out is as minimal and simple as possible. So I designed all of the pieces to be that clean, easy to build, fast to build because the timeline is tight and just give the merchandise room to breathe and be shown off rather than the pieces in it. How is working with OSB? I've never done it before. Is it different than any other plywood really? I would rate it better than MDF or particle board, but obviously worse than plain plywood. Right there in the middle. So if you so if you know working with MDF, the sawdust is just the worst yeah. thing in the world because you're making sawdust out of pressed sawdust. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's plywood times two or plywood <laughs> squared or sawdust squared, 
But either way, it's not fun. But the good thing about OSB is it's kind of chipboard. It's pressed pieces of wood together. So you're getting real sawdust for the most part. So it's a lot easier to work with in that sense. Do you feel like you... This might be a good workbench con game or test. Do you think you could tell the difference between a freshly cut piece of MDF, a freshly cut piece of plywood, and a freshly cut piece of OSB just by smelling them blind? I think you could. I, I think I think I might be able to. I mean, I'd yeah. have to smell the OSB to get a baseline, but the other two, I feel like I can I can uh, tell the difference. Well, that's the first thing I was thinking is that OSB smells different than plywood. At least I've always <laughs> thought that. Maybe I'm crazy. But no, it's got it's very strong compared to plywood. I think it's because it has more glue, so you're smelling yeah. like a higher amount of glue, whereas uh, MDF is more heat impressed together. So I think there's actually less glue than uh, osb so i think that's why osb has that strong kind of formaldehyde smell it also off gases i think the most uh formaldehyde of any of the sheet goods oh perfect so we'll make sure and uh, let them breathe for a little bit before we get them into the store (laughs) well everybody died (laughs) yeah other than that this week on my youtube channel modern builds check that out i am putting out a video putting of making a simple commission quality dining table with limited tools Oh, the oak one, right? Exactly. My most recent video was making a gigantic, not easily built table for (laughs) Gary V. And so I thought I would follow that up by saying, hey, here's how you also make a dining table that is potentially sellable or at least to that quality. But instead of spending a ton of money on slabs or having crazy tools like Urban Timber has, here's how you do it with a circular saw and drill mostly. Was this a commissioned one? This was, yes. Okay. I remember, I think you talked about a couple weeks ago about going to the lumber yard and getting everything. I did. So I took the camera with me, got some cool shots of all that machinery that they use to surface all of their wood and put a straight edge on it and all of that kind of stuff. So it's going to have some cool behind the scenes on where I get my lumber. So if that's something that interests people, you're going to like that video. This is the one for you. Yes, sir. Chris, what do you got coming out this week? It's going to be a follow up to last week's video where I'm, I ended up doing shop. Is that what they call it? Shoptober? Whatever. Shoptober. Shoptober. Wow, I've honestly never even heard of that. I hadn't heard of it. I I just happened to be in need of doing some shop projects, and it turns out there's a thing called Shoptober. But uh, yeah, so last week on Friday, I put out videos of a vertical plywood cabinet and then a a big storage thing that went in a bay window of my garage. And then this week, I'm following that up with the back wall of my garage where I did this kind of geometric pattern and then I'm hanging tools on it and um, a few other organizational things. And I actually ended up getting some good ideas from people who listened to the podcast and wrote in. So I think it was maybe, I don't know, three weeks ago or so that I had mentioned that I was just starting this. So I got a few different ideas. I ended up um, going through with a couple of them and have been happy with everything that people suggested and that I tried. So this video kind of turned into a roundup of different organizational things that you can either do or or products that you can purchase even though it wasn't sponsored by any of those companies um it, it kind so of what felt- all did you try out i so, saw the okay. first part of your video that you released already this past week and you built a big plywood kind of cabinet so you can store your sheet goods and all your cutoffs yeah okay so along the back wall i did this geometric pattern so i showed how to build that and then what i ended up doing on that wall was i wanted to display tools but have it be super minimal looking where like when you're from a distance all you can really see is the tool so i went to home depot to just kind of look around and see what i can find and i found 
Um, there's those screws there. I think they're called like gripper or something like that. And they have these ones that are really long where they're only threaded, like, you know, maybe the first third of it. And yeah. then the head is almost non-existent. The head is like the same diameter as the shaft of the screw. I think they're called trim screws, right? I, I'm not sure what they're called, but I was just like, Ooh, these look perfect. So I bought those and then I bought, I think it's called heat shrink, which is like what you would put like, you know, you put heat on it. It's to wrap up electrical wires that are loose. Yeah. So I bought some of that stuff and ended up just like putting the screws in, in the wall at a slight angle. So they're just angled slightly up and then heat shrinking some of that around them to just make a sort of rubberized, less slippery and like softer non-marring surface to set tools on. And it worked out really great. So I only hung like maybe five of my Hikoki tools. So the wall is yeah. pretty much still blank at this point, but I want to use a lot of that technique. I don't want, you know, obviously I'm not going to do anything that's super heavy using that technique, but for a lot of like lighter things that you grab more often or that you want to kind of display, which I know is a sort of unique situation since it's also my backdrop. So that might not appeal to everybody, but it's a really easy way to like hang some things. It's 100% customizable because you're just putting screw into a wood. So that was one of the things I did. Um, Then on the, on the plywood, the vertical plywood panel, there's a big face of it that's just not used for anything. So I wanted to hang more stuff on that. So I ended up getting some of those wall control panels. Oh, so those, okay. They're kind of like pegboard, right? Yeah, it's like pegboard, but then it also has slots. So it's um, they make like different kinds of brackets and things that you can use to customize it. So I ended up getting four panels of those and they're pretty awesome. So I'm definitely going to use more of those. Um, down the road, but yeah, I just kind of dipped my toe in that. Then I got recommended this other stuff called Kaizen foam. Have you guys heard of that? Yep. Use it all the time. Okay. Yep. That stuff's awesome. Yeah. Like it, it, it's strangely therapeutic to, to cut. Like I, just one night I was just out there for like two hours, just cutting out like random shapes. So basically how would just, you describe it? Yeah. It's a, so it's like a foam that comes in a bunch of layers. So you would, you could like trace out the shape of a tool that you want to put it, put into it cut it out with a knife and then you kind of peel away at the layer so that you end up with a negative shape. And so the way that I describe it in the video is like if you picture a really high end briefcase that has some expensive tool in it where you need like an exact negative of that tool, it would be like that kind of a thing. Exactly. Like really dense. Yeah. So I did that. And then, um, Rockler has this stuff called, I forget what, like lock a line or shelf lock a line. It's basically Mm. a modular, system for organizing drawers. Um, so it kind of serves the same purpose as the Kaizen foam, but it's probably a little bit better for most people because it's not as labor intensive to make. And it's, it's more versatile because you can repurpose everything if you change what you're going to put in your drawers. Um, and then I think that was it. That sounds pretty cool. There might've been one. There's one other thing I'm forgetting, but yeah, it turned into kind of just like a roundup of different organizational things. So no French cleats, no French cleats. I don't blame you. Freedom cleats. <laughs> that's what. I, that's right. I called them freedom cleats. Freedom cleats. Oh, yeah. So uh, that video should come out later this week. One thing I will say: the the last video. It's funny how many comments I got from people like, "Why would you cover up a window?" And it's yeah. funny because like it's actually been covered the entire time. Like it was never exposed before. And I'm like, I have an insane amount of light in my garage, but I don't have much storage. So that's why I did it. In a perfect world, I'd have both. Yeah, people like can't it. get over those basic things. Yeah, like, they were pissed. Never cover a window. That's never paint light. wood. How dare you? And Chris what, did both of those in that video. Yeah, I did. <laughs> yes. And in general, for the hat trick. 
they can both be great pieces of advice, but the minute you keep living your life by all these rules, you kind of reduce your options and can paint yourself into a box and have stuff that's pretty unremarkable. Speaking mm-hmm. of being in a box, how's the shipping container house coming along this week, Ben? That is ben? smooth. Hmm. Well, let's see. What have I been doing? Well, Ooh, maybe give people the, the new listeners, give them the rundown of the shipping container home. Okay, but first that, because I haven't actually been doing too much for it, because I did finish up and deliver the the table that I made for Gary Vanerchuk. Very exciting. <laughs> Which uh, had a lot of help from Mike on that one. Mike did about mm, 40% of the work on that one, <laughs> if, if not more, if you count that. So the the story on that was me and Mike got to meet Gary, Gary V., and we made him a couple tables. And at first, it wasn't entirely clear uh, whether or not they were supposed to be conference tables or break room tables. And we got this kind of weird request, and it asked for, and it was from the, the architect or interior designer for their new LA office. And they asked for tables that were 34 inches high. And immediately, me and Mike were both like, Are you sure? Like, that's a weird height. Like, yeah. tables for normal chairs should be about 30 inches and counter height uh, surfaces should be about 36 inches but we we asked again and they said oh yeah yeah 34 inches well so we made these two tables um they're beautiful yes mike's video's out my video is currently being edited and i was a little bit worried when i agreed to doing it but i said oh, i'll figure something out and then it got really beaten down with the shipping container house project and didn't have any time. I had all these other deadlines and I kept pushing this project off to the side. And I just couldn't really, I kept thinking I was going to find like an idea that was both unique and also easy. And I only thought of ideas that were either unique and not easy or ideas that were easy and too basic. So I kept pushing it off and pushing it off. And then finally it just got to the point where I had to get done uh, Mike helped out a ton by actually going all the way uh, to meet with the Urban Timber guys. Shout out to Urban Timber guys. Um, check them out on Instagram. At and, U-R-B-N Timber. Yeah. There's no A in Urban. Right. And Mike, worked with uh, with those guys, produced these really nice ash slabs that also <laughs> were super heavy. Right. Uh, and uh, brought those back to Joshua Tree. And so all I had to do was make legs. But I kept thinking of, and I, and I think I'm actually going to experiment with a new type of video edit where I actually put a little bit more of the design process with a little bit of whiteboard kind of action where I sort of draw out what I was thinking and why I made the decisions that I did. So I was trying to think of a way to make legs that don't look like normal legs that would still be strong enough to hold a tabletop that weighed about 220 pounds. And I was also thinking about how should you make legs differently for a conference table than from a normal table? Because if you think about a conference table, the height is the same as a normal table. It's just way longer. So the proportions are totally different. So if you make normal looking table legs, it looks like a stretch limousine, like awkward, (laughs) right? Because it's like totally parts are the same and then this thing's different. So I want to think of a, of a way of doing the legs that actually use the negative space of underneath the top to to make like a pattern or effect or, or really be the aesthetic. So it wasn't just like the form of two legs going up to the slab. So I was actually thinking of the way you would design a really long table is you'd think about 
how the leg sort of carved up the space and made the silhouette below it. And that's where I sort of, you know, started thinking of these ideas. And so I took a few ideas about sort of landscapes and city skylines. And then I mixed those with uh, types of steel profiles that would be affordable and easy and came up with this kind of mishmash idea where I made a whole bunch of steel skyscrapers that I bolted to the underside of the table and that ended up actually looking more like kind of icicles or stalactites or something. Um, but it was a it was a fun project, and uh, the people there seemed really excited with it. So I actually had to set it up <laughs> during a normal office day, so people were coming over and checking it out, and and uh, you know asking questions about it and stuff like that. So that was a fun project. the The response on Instagram has been way better than than I was hoping for. I was thinking of it as sort of a throwaway project and that was a responsibility of something that I promised not necessarily being a good piece of content, but now I'm now I'm excited to do the the edit. In terms of Tiny House, it's been actually it's been a pretty frustrating uh week. So, we had a lot of flooding out here in the desert recently. So, we had like 3 days of rain and just mudslides. The house that we rented is like the whole front yard is full of like this mud slide that like came in and we have this concrete driveway that we normally do our welding projects on the whole thing was covered in about two inches of uh, two to four inches of mud so i had wow. a night had a nice time shoveling that oh mike your motorcycle's about eight inches in mud oh damn all right i gotta get back out there and <laughs> sell it <laughs> um so it was just you know Dealing with all that's really frustrating because it's one of those things where I think this year I've, I've I tried to take on a lot of big projects and that means that there's not a lot of like room for error time and schedule wise. I just have all these projects and the many of them got delayed and then I, the other obligations I have stack up on top of that. And so when you're in that sort of feeling schedulely or schedule your schedule is totally overloaded, anything natural disaster type thing that you didn't plan on becomes really extra annoying and stressful because you're already just of your own creation stressed you have more to do than you have time to do it and then this other thing it comes in and then just ruins that just exacerbates the whole thing and you just feel like you've lost time for nothing so one I had to deal with the sort of rental house cleaning that all up you know the a bunch of water came into the garage luckily all the tools were fine so on top of that okay take care of that get out to the construction site and the dirt road was totally washed out but it looked really flat but it looked different i couldn't really figure out what was different and then i realized it's all covered in about 12 inches of really soft sand whoa right and then as i went a little farther on the road i see all these trucks and cars stuck in the sand and this is like the one road to get to the 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 construction site Despite sort of a uh, racial stereotypes, I actually drove really well and didn't get stuck in the sand <laughs> even without uh, without four wheel drive. So even with just two wheel drive, I sort of quickly saw, oh, don't like slow down, don't right. speed up, go real forward. consistent, and don't turn the wheel too much. Right. Uh, so I actually drove past my. Uh, a truck full of my construction workers who are stuck in the sand and i i did i couldn't stop to to get them uh so i, I just waved at momentum. them just and, roll the window down sorry right. guys too sharp of a turn but because of that 
construction base we had like two useless days of construction because no one can get out to the site unless they're in like a four-wheel drive vehicle we were supposed to have a delivery of all these giant concrete planters that we're using for the septic and uh, water reclamation and filtering systems couldn't get out there and they can't just be rescheduled to two or three days later they're like oh our next available slot is like 10 days later oh man on top of that uh, we have to install these fire sprinklers in the house. The The guy was out there. He was installing them. And then he left about halfway done and then just didn't come back the next day. So we're calling him. Doesn't answer the phone. Doesn't answer the phone. We'd already paid the deposit. Finally, he answers the phone. and says, oh, I got called over to an emergency job. I'll be there next week. What the heck? But there's literally nothing else we can do until he does that because we have to like close up the walls once he's done and we can't really finish doing anything until we close up the walls so this is one of those challenges of again it's why you don't want to schedule too tight especially when there's variables that are outside of your control it's why you want to keep a time cushion a capital cushion all these kind of cushions uh because things like this happen so it's been a yeah it's Luckily, I don't have any like super dire deadlines. The the thing, the big deadline for Home Depot has is, is, is come and gone. Um, but it's just one of those things where big projects are fun because you learn ton, tons of new things and, you know, you have a bigger result. But man, they have a whole bunch of pitfalls uh, that can that can happen in a way. So uh, dealing with that, but... The end is in sight for the tiny house, which is made out of shipping containers and has been the biggest project that I've done for content to date. Um, it's going to be in a, a you know a long format video series that's going to start on my YouTube channel and, and might actually extend to a new YouTube channel as well. Still figuring out those details, but uh, it, it, it's tough because I'm really it looks almost done and I really want to show it to everybody, but. Uh, it's just finishing things, man. Finishing things is so hard to do. It's I'll tell the last 10%, man. Yeah. Well, either way, stay, keep your, keep your head up. That sounds like a real bleep storm. So yeah, keep at Rainstorm? it. Rainstorm? Is that what you're going to say? Yep. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <Real rainstorm. laughs> I was about to say a, a rainstorm in Joshua Tree is apparently like apocalypse. Yeah. There's flash floods in the desert. So I've got to ask, Ben, in your architecture past, how involved were you on the job site for most of the things that were building that you were building? Um, maybe compare some of the homes your architecture firm did versus the loft building that you did in Boston. And were there similar challenges where it was environmental, or were there challenges where it was you know contractors or timelines or how how has this experience been compared to the other things that you've worked on? in the same right space. so with a full service architecture firm about 30 percent anywhere from like 20 to 30 percent of the contract is for construction administration mm. and so an architecture firm bills similarly to a law firm is it is what you'll do is you'll say okay for to design this house from start to finish where you can move into it and uh, you get the keys it's going to take this long and it's going to take this many billable hours to get through this project. And then you bill them for the hours that your team is working on it along the way. And we'd always sort of say that about 20 to 30% of those hours should be reserved for construction administration. And what's important is that if you're, especially if you're doing a really expensive house. And so let's say you're a wealthy person that, that bought land and you're going to spend about 
three to five million dollars on building a really cool house. You have a contract with the general contractor, but that's a lot of money that you're going to be spending. It's a, it's a huge purchase. Totally. And construction administration is to make sure that the contractor is not skimming. They're not charging you for uh, this kind of stone tile, but putting in this kind. Right. They're not charging you for really high-end HVAC system and furnace, but actually putting in something else, right? So construction administration is, one, it's important as sort of a check and balance to make sure that the contractor is doing what they're supposed to, but it's also just for design control and making sure that it's being implemented relative to the drawings. Also, drawings are never perfect. Um, so there's always things in the field that come up, and being there on site uh, is supportive to the contractor to make sure all those things get resolved. So for normal projects, I would be there about, you know, I'd split the, the duties with uh, Stephanie, my partner for the for Zero Energy Design, the architecture firm. Yeah, and if anyone ever wants to see the, the work that we did, uh, just go to Zero Energy, all spelled out, Z-E-R-O, energy.com, and that's the firm. And there win a ton of awards, and we do awesome work, and a lot of it looks pretty cool. So, <laughs> yeah, we, we'd be there about, you know, not every day, but like maybe like once every, once a week or once every two weeks. Now, with, with my house in uh, Jamaica Plain, part of Boston, the, the apartment building that I actually developed and I was the, the client, I hired a, a contractor. I designed a building. I hired a contractor. Um, and I, w- I would show up on site and sort of just to check and see and make sure it was what I want, answer the questions. But uh, I wasn't too involved with the building shell construction, but I did build out all the interior stuff in my unit. So whenever you're coming at it from a from the architecture firm standpoint, all of those building problems, whether it's like what we're talking about, rains come and floods happen, or if it's a thing where your contractor or or a subcontract subcontractor rather, so say your paint crew ends up being flaky and they don't show up, or the electrician does a bad job here or there. Typically, that's something that the general contractor is going to take care of, unless it's a major problem to where it kind of goes up tiers. Right. So for those kind of staffing problems, that's the contractor's thing to deal with, not the architects. The architect has to deal with the realities and constraints of physically building something Mm -hmm. being different from the constraints of drawing something. So what are the typical problems in the realization of that? Sequencing of things, right? Ah. Because you can draw something finished, but not think how to get one thing in place before the the other thing has to go on, right? It'd be like designing something, but the like a big sculpture inside an atrium, but you don't design a door big enough to fit it in. <laughs> and in yeah. something as complicated and big as a building, it's really easy to overlook some of those things. Well, what about you, Chris? What's the thing that you bring from the the design world that parallels with what you do now? Hang on, wait. I gotta, I gotta back up because I had a question. Oh, okay. From b- going back to the the uh, Gary V tables. Yeah. Why were they thirty four inches? Turns Did out you guys ever get an designer answer? Doesn't know. No, the, not at all. Their designer doesn't know what they're doing. So, do you think they were supposed to be thirty? One hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. I was like, is that the question everybody kept in and asking Ben? Like, oh man, these are awesome tables. Why are they so no, tall? This is what I think happened. Is 
we we were talking about making the tables. We asked for some general specs. Somebody that was re- answering the emails sort of yelled over their shoulder to the designer, uh, hey, how tall should the tables be? And the designer's like, I don't know, like maybe 34 inches. And they probably were... They probably were thinking, oh, the tables are either 30 inches or 36 inches. Oh, I can't remember which one. Let me just split, split the, the difference. difference, which is the right. worst thing to do. <laughs> exactly, because now it's in that middle ground that you can't put stools at it, and you yeah, also can't put chairs at. So otherwise you feel like you're a toddler sitting at it with your elbows really right. high. You guys but. just made some custom chair maker a bunch of money. Yeah, exactly. But we, we offered to cut them down to 30 inches because that would be – the easiest thing is just chop a little bit of length off of the bases. Yeah. So we'll we'll see how everything plays out. Most likely they're gonna figure it, figure out how to fix it themselves. Since I'm in Oklahoma currently, Ben's in California in Joshua Tree, which is right. a two hour drive from their office. So yeah. I don't know. We'll see how it plays out. If anything develops, it'll be on Instagram and it'll be on the podcast. But back to you, Chris. You know, and actually, I have a since you were asking me about design. As soon as Ben said. Um, it, or one of you said you didn't know if it was a dining table or a conference table. And I started thinking, oh, what would the difference be? And I had a thought. I don't know if this is like a standard thing, but if I was designing a conference table, even if it was supposed to be rectangular, I would put a little bow in it because conversations at a dining table tend to be, there's a bunch of conversations going on and you're just kind of talking to the people around you. Whereas in a conference, there's usually one person talking and everybody's kind of looking that way and you take turns. So having a little bow in it would make it a lot easier to see somebody that's three people to your right, but on the same side of the table as you. Or like a triangle. (laughs) So they all just pyramid towards you. Everybody's seeing everybody. I'm with it. That's my design background coming into play. Cool. (laughs) Shapes. (laughs) Shapes, baby. Bows. Yeah, that was that's cool. Yeah, what have you guys been obsessed with? Headphones. And this is okay, let me tell you the the saga of me and headphones lately. So I've been doing a lot more editing at night and at home. So I wanted to get some noise canceling headphones, which I don't know if you guys do you guys have those? No, I don't have active noise canceling headphones. But I do have a recommendation for you. All right. Well, I have researched this at length. Well, I guarantee you, Let's if hear it. the people you've been reading from know anything, they're going to say the same thing I am. Okay, let's hear it. No, you say yours, though. I want to see if I'm right or wrong. Well, okay. So I, I went through everything. So it basically came down to, I won't say all the model numbers, but there's a Sennheiser model, a Bose model, and a Sony model. And mm. I was I was leaning towards the Sennheiser ones until I saw that these new Sony ones came out. They just came out with like a new model of the ones that that I'm interested in, which I will say the model number. It's WH-1000XM3, I think. So it's basically the like Mark III version of these headphones. And one of the things that's really important to me since I wear glasses is that like I've, I used to do a lot of music, uh, like, you know, producing music and recording myself and all that. And when I would edit the music, if I had the headphones on for a long time, they would really start to hurt because of the glasses, like pushing into the side of my head. It seems like a little thing, but like you'll have like indentions in the side of your head after a while. So I wanted to make sure that I got something really comfortable. So I was like really trying to research that and find it out. Um, And then I finally landed on which ones I wanted, the Sonys. And then I'm like, okay, I'm going to buy them. And they're not available anywhere because oh, they just no. came out like a month ago. Yeah. And I'm, I'm the type of guy, like I'll research something a bunch, but then once I've made my decision on it, I'm like, 
go get it. Like, right. I don't want to wait anymore. Yeah. yeah, I'm ready. And so now I'm like, God. So I'm basically like, I was just like, well, I want those ones. So I ordered them and it says it's not going to ship for like six weeks. Dang. Well, yeah. what were the ones that I was supposed to get, Mike? Since they're not going to be there for six weeks, I think you should order these off of Amazon so that you can try them and return them if you don't like them. Okay. But they are, they're not active noise canceling. So if that is something that's super important, then I understand that if that, that makes this a deal breaker, but they are made by a company called Bayer Dynamic. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the model is DT Delta Tango. Del Taco. 770. Bayer Dynamic DT 770s. You have those? I do. Uh, And to ask myself the question of what did I carry over from my past into what I'm doing now? It's the mixing headphones. Mm -hmm. These are sort of studio standards, apparently. And they've got a great response. They're super flat. They're super true. And they're the most comfortable headphones in the world I've ever put on. I can edit, mix music, just wear them for like six hours straight. And there's no ear fatigue. And what's amazing about them is they don't touch your ear at all. I know a lot of over-ear headphones, even though they sit off of your head and they're supposed to make this cup around your ear, your ear still ends up touching them somewhere. And -hmm. after a while, it gets uncomfortable. But these are... Pretty big. They don't look particularly goofy, but they don't look low-key at all. Right. And they're just amazing. They're the most comfortable ones in the world. They feel like nothing's on your head. They're incredibly light, and you'll never have ear fatigue. Nice. I may check them out since I got time to spare. Check them out. If you don't like them, throw them in the trash. <laughs> don't even return them. <laughs> don't even return I don't them. The, I don't want the money. It's not back. worth it. But anyways... That's cool to hear. So I'm excited to hear how you like the Sonys, though, because I've never had a pair of active noise-canceling headphones before. Me neither. Do they take batteries? Uh, you charge them with a... And that's oh, okay. another really good thing with that one is it's USB-C. Nice. So that'll be convenient because I'm just going to keep them pretty much at my at my desk. And that was actually one of the other things about the, Sin- the Sennheiser was there's a feature in there that's cool for most people, but I think will bug the heck out of me, which is it doesn't have an on off button. So to turn it off, you twist it so that it's like the cups are flat on the table. And it's just like, I'm going to end up leaving them on all the time. So absolutely. That was like just a drawback. Awesome. Well, Ben, what's your obsession this week? Mine is going to be a shout out for our friends at the made for profit podcast. Good so I've been doing a little bit of traveling and got to catch up on some podcasts and binged about three episodes uh, of theirs. Really enjoyed their interview with David Picciuto. Mm, that was a good one. And then they also did one about sort of niches or niches, whichever way. I think they're both correct ways of saying it. Um, so check out that podcast if you're a maker, uh, particularly if you're a maker that's trying to make uh, some money making. It's fantastic. It's has great information. It's one of those podcasts that's focused on a on a topic. Uh, so it's very useful for sort of self-education. Also, those guys are great. And we're going to see them at WorkbenchCon, which is important because tickets are going really fast this year. So I it's think- going to be freaking awesome. The amount of tickets that they're selling right now is crazy. It's going to be huge. Yeah, so they're, I think there's, they're about 70% of all the early bird tickets are gone. So it used, last year, it was more by time, like if the, the prices went up after a certain amount of time. I think this year, it's sort of a combination of there's a certain number of tickets they can sell total. And 
the first, I think like 300 to 350 tickets or so are going to be in this uh, early bird, uh, less expensive tier. So get your tickets fast. I think they've already sold, uh, you know, by the, the, yeah, I think it's about 70% of the early bird tickets. So get yours while they can just Google workbench con and get them. The speakers are going to be awesome. There's going to be really great workshops and sessions. And there's we're working on a couple of surprise last-minute guests that are going to be making some appearances. Not necessarily even doing a talk, but just sort of mingling around and uh, you know shooting the, the breeze with everybody. So my recommendations would be the Made for Profit podcast and Workbench Con. Which will be February of 2019. See. Yes, and I highly, highly recommend getting there a day early. Yep. I'm going to do that this year. Yeah. That that was my one regret from last year, was trying to pack it. It was like just a whirlwind (laughs) of like getting off the plane, immediately going there, and then like before I knew it, it was all over, where it would have been cool to just like have a decompressed day. Yes, and I I haven't picked my topic for my individual session that I'm going to do, so... If anyone out there has a idea for what they want me to talk about, uh, hit me up on Instagram. Paper clips. Paper clips. <laughs> Woo. Right. Mike, obsession. This week, I am going to shout out someone I met for the first time last year at WorkbenchCon. That is a great coincidence. And it is April Wilkerson. Recently, she put out a video that she has titled The Ultimate Mobile Clamp Rack. Saw and that. I think it's really great. She's done a few shop projects recently since she's finished her mega shop, and I really like them. They're all clean, simple, nothing crazy to build, but super functional, and I really appreciate that. So if you haven't already, we will link. No, we're not going to link them, but we will say just go to at April Wilkerson on Instagram. You'll find it. Find her on YouTube, and I think you're going to dig that. If you don't like that one, watch her workbench video, and then you will absolutely be impressed. Yes, indeedy. Awesome. Oh, and the last thing I was going to say when you talked about Made for Profit, we all three have been the guest host on that show at one point. That's right. So that makes it just that much better. True story. Really brought them up a level. Totally. (laughs) Thank goodness we did those interviews. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any topic suggestions for us in the future, we would love to hear them. You can DM us individually at Four Eyes Furniture, at Benjamin Ueda, and at Modern Builds. Collectively, we are at Modern Builds. And if you nope. haven't already, follow nope. at you are Maker wrong. Maker Podcast. Did I do it again? <laughs> you did it again. Golly. <laughs> I just get into plugging this. plugging yourself. <laughs> All right, everybody. Collectively, we're at Modern Maker Podcast. But the real important thing that I would really appreciate everyone doing is going to at Maker Brand Co. That is the company that the three of us have started collectively. We have released woodworking clamps. We've got the strongest bar clamps in the game. You will be impressed. As well as F-style clamps that are just as sturdy. Other than that, we have come out with a product called Simple Finish, which is the best finish on the market. I'm going to say it. If you need an oil-based finish for your woodworking projects, that's the one to use. Get the one with wax. Yep. So thanks again, everybody. We love reviews. We love high fives. And we love the fact that you listen every week. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Modern Maker Podcast. Bye, everybody. See ya. Bye. Bye. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> Wade's getting longer and longer.